I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 12, 2013. Coming up, we hear about life in Japan following the devastating Tohoku earthquake and tsunami that ravaged the nation two years ago yesterday. He said, you, you have to see this as soon as possible before they start cleaning it up so you'll understand what, what really happened here. And we learned about the processed food industrialized complex from the author of a new book. Did you ever wonder where all those vitamins in your breakfast cereal come from? It's probably not what you think. We begin with some of the recent news in science. If you think it's getting warmer, despite today's temperature, you're right. A new study suggests that global average temperatures are now higher than they have been for about 75% of the past 11,300 years. And just wait. If the climate models play out, by the end of the century, those temperatures will reach their highest levels they've ever been since the end of the most recent ice age. That's about 11,000 years ago. How do scientists know this when instrumental records of climate began in just 1880? To go farther back in time, researchers rely on Mother Nature, such as tree rings and isotope ratios, in cave formations to estimate past surface temperatures. A new study was led by Sean Marcotte, a climate scientist at Oregon State University. It was published in the March 8th issue of Science. Marcotte and his colleagues used fossils of tiny marine organisms from all over the world to reconstruct the ancient global temperatures. Their data show that it took 4,000 years for the world to warm about 1.25 degrees from the end of the Ice Age to about 7,000 years ago. The same data suggest a similar degree of warning, warming happened in just two decades, from the 1920s to the 1940s. Another report released last week showed that atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations have now almost reached 395 parts per million, not encouraging news on the climate front. Extreme living may conjure images of huts in the snowy Arctic or tents in the Sahara. But try this home on for size, a 130-degree Fahrenheit acidic hot spring choked with heavy metals. Or how about a polluted slag pond alongside an abandoned mine? Sound inviting? It is to Galdieria sulfuraria, a red microalga that can represent up to 90% of the biomass in such otherwise inhospitable environments. Scientists on a multi-institution team of researchers sequenced the genome of this single-cell organism to learn more about how it evolved to survive in the extremes and what that might mean for us humans. No, we're not looking to move into hot springs homes or slag ponds, but better understanding this alga could advance both human medicine and bioremediation. For both, researchers are looking to the alga's membranes. The membrane proteins, which are particularly robust, are the same classes of proteins that are essential for metabolism and human immune response. Virtually all the important pathways, the researchers say, that contribute to disease treatment involve membrane proteins. For bioremediation, researchers may look to how the alga selectively uptake metals into their membranes, including toxic metals. One form of the alga can neutralize arsenic, which it can turn into less toxic and possibly gaseous methyl derivatives. While we may not want to live in the environments chosen by these algae, we may be able to use these algae to make the environments we do choose to live in a little healthier. Looking for something sciencey to do this week? Check out Boulder Café Scientifique tonight at the Outlook Hotel on 28th Street. 
University of Colorado professor Steve Narum will talk about the effect of climate change on our coasts and beyond in his talk entitled, What's Happening in the Bathtub? The Science of Sea Level Change. Refresh- refreshments begin at 5.30 with a talk starting at 6 p.m. And next week, swing by Denver's Café Scientifique on Tuesday, March 19th for the University of Colorado's Michael Eisman's talk on the complications of treating tuberculosis. The talk is entitled, Eliminate TB? We Should Have Reread Darwin First. The event starts at 6.30 at the Wincoop Brewing Company. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Beth Bartel. Yesterday marked the two-year anniversary of the devastating earthquake and tsunami that rocked and partially devoured the northern coast of Japan. Although prone to earthquakes, the Tohoku event hit a magnitude of 9.0, tying it for fourth largest earthquake on record, according to the United States Geological Survey, a magnitude greater than scientists thought possible for this region. Last month, I spoke with author Gretel Ehrlich about her recently published book, Facing the Wave, A Journey in the Wake of the Tsunami. We enter the interview where she is talking about traveling with her translator's family on what they called family holidays, in which her translator's father, Sapporo, drove. He drove us up the coast to um, see the the first three towns uh, that were destroyed by the tsunami, and he... He said, you, you have to see this as soon as possible before they start cleaning it up so you'll understand what, what really happened here. And as soon as possible was three months after the earthquake and tsunami, correct? Yeah. And your, your book, you're very, you mentioned that you um, are an aficionado of Japanese poetry, and your book is very lyrical and also very descriptive. It's almost in some ways a, a series of snapshots. Um, and I was taken by the the scenes that you described a full three months after the tsunami. Could you could you tell us a little bit about what you saw? Well, the first town we went to is uh, Minimas Sanriku, where ten thousand people out of seventeen thousand total died in the tsunami. The town is non-existent now. It's just wiped clean. Uh, you know, a lot of Japan, it goes um, sort of like Colorado. It's a, a flat basin, and then it goes straight up into high mountains. Well, not high like here, but they're steep and beautiful. Um, and so the tsunami just it just erased everything up to the mountains. There's nothing left. Just the rubbish piles were um, maybe um, a story high on either, you know, you drive down the road and it was rubble on either side of the road uh, between 20 and 150 feet tall. In this town, there's a hospital at at the end of a road, Um, a three-story hospital on the second, the terrace of a second story was a fishing boat just sitting there. There was a, 
x-ray machine hanging out of a window and a nurse's uniform hanging out of a window. Many, many patients, doctors, and nurses died. They were trying to move patients to the third floor, but the third floor wasn't high enough. You went back two more times after that. Yeah, I spent a month in three different seasons. And how different were things in December when you went back, the last time you went back? Really quite different. You know, the first month it was still survivor's euphoria. I mean, that kind of wild mix of deep, deep grief, for especially those who lost loved ones. Not lot. They weren't so upset about losing their houses. I mean, you know, they these are people who lived in earthquake country a long time. Um, and in September, there was a horrible typhoon that just wiped out everything that had been rebuilt, or not rebuilt, but um, repaired or replanted. Um, more boats were lost. But, and in December, it was very cold, but people there was a sense that people ha- were actually facing the day-to-day dilemma of how to make money, how to make a living, how to eat. You know, when you've lost your, I mean, most of the, this is rural Japan, it's not Tokyo. So they were either rice farmers or fishermen. And when you lose your means of of livelihood, and you, you have you have no recourse, and so they were um, they were beginning to get boats or fixing up boats. They were beginning to plant winter vegetables, building greenhouses, repairing the houses that were standing. You know, depending on the topography, there were some in some wider areas there were some houses at the very back that were standing so you know there was a real kind of sense of digging in and making survival viable how is the story uniquely japanese so of course it's not a fictional story but i'll still use the word story um how would this have been different if it had happened in another place well I don't know how it would be different, but I know that in Japan, people face what is without any sentimentality. They just take it in their stride. I mean, you have to think of the whole history of this island, both seismically and politically. They've already been through a lot during the war, thanks to us. And... um, and also, I think it's a, a foundational aspect of their culture, which really came from China and Korea, that um, their aesthetic sense, their sense of beauty, um, is framed by perishability and uh, a very strong understanding of impermanence. And so these people, especially rural people, because they're, you know, really hardworking and they're tough-minded and um, strong-bodied and they have a sense of um, persistence and um, they just kind of, they took it in stride. I mean, they, 
you know, one Shinto priest said to me, everything here is based on wa, which means together living, which is a Shinto idea, and shunyata, which is a Buddhist notion of emptiness, meaning not a nihilistic emptiness, but that that there are no, we, we can't project what we want onto the world. We just have to take what is. And, and I think those two things really describe the Japanese response to a disaster like this. And there was also lots of laughter, you know, because it was, uh, it was surreal and it was, um, you know, there were, they didn't, you know, sort of hold this idea of, of tragedy. I mean, they, so the laughter came, the tears came, the, the, you know, the despair when the typhoon came and that quickly went away, you know, they really just let their emotions move with what was actually happening. Did you notice whether people had different emotions or different attitudes toward the tsunami and the results of the tsunami versus the uh, failure of the nuclear reactors. They were very angry about the meltdowns, of course, who wouldn't be, especially after World War II. I mean, one woman I met said, she was laughing, she said, you know what, I lost two houses. I lost one in Nagasaki and I just lost mine in the tsunami. Isn't that amazing? She said, how many people like me do you think there are in Japan? Um, I mean, she was laughing, but of course, you know that inside that laughter is a a sense of, well, impermanence and history and, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, But there was never this why me feeling. It was just, well, strange things happen in life. And here I am. That was Gretel Ehrlich talking with us about her new book, Facing the Wave, A Journey in the Wake of the Tsunami. For more about how communities survive the tsunamis and the formation of strange alliances, head to our webpage at howonearthradio.org to listen to the extended interview. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Did you ever think about how long that energy bar you ate while skiing recently would last intact beyond the expiration date? Or the Oreo cookies you devoured last night? Well, Melanie Warner, a local journalist and former staff writer at the New York Times, started thinking about it so much that she began experimenting with leaving some processed foods out way, way beyond the officially expired date. What alarmed her? was that they looked as perfect months later as they had when she bought them. What are they doing to my and my children's bodies, she wondered. So her inquiry recently materialized into a book. It's called Pandora's Lunchbox, How How Processed Food Took Over the American Meal. She's in the studio now to offer plenty of, well, food for thought, about what's in and what's behind some of the iconic foods in the American diet. Melanie, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you. Glad to be here. So maybe start with your personal journey. I mean, it really doesn't begin in your kitchen. It begins in your head, I guess. But but what you found and what sort of grossed you out at the beginning that led to this obsession of sorts? Yeah, there were there were a few things. Um, 
when I first started covering the food industry, this was about 2004, I, uh, I remember going to, to a trade show. It was called the Institute of Food Technologist Annual Trade Show. And I, I had never heard of a food technologist, as probably many people haven't. And I went to this trade show, and it was all these ingredient companies selling um, all these strange things that I had never heard of. It was about a 1,000 companies there in this giant cavernous convention hall. And everyone was talking about food as an application, as in um, this is an ingredient for a cheese application or a meat application. And I thought, what the heck is a cheese application? <laughs> and it was almost as if people were speaking a different language. Um, and the whole thing was very surreal to me. And it, it occurred to me at that point that technology had merged with food production to a much greater extent than we realized. Mm. Um, and that was the story, part of the story that I wanted to tell with this book. Kind of the journey that our food goes on before it reaches, um, between what happens after the farm before it reaches our plate. And just for context, just to find processed food, I take it there is an official definition? Well, there's not really an official definition. The term gets thrown around a little bit, but I like to think of it as it's a, it's a product, it's a food that you could not create at home in your home kitchen using the same ingredients that are listed on the package. So there are probably a few exceptions to that rule, but I think it's a pretty good working definition. So pretty much non-food is in your food. <laughs> Yeah. And I think if, if you find a product that has all kinds of strange ingredients that you don't recognize and that you wouldn't have at home, and if it's got, uh, you know, a, several paragraphs of ingredients, that most certainly is a processed food. So some of the more obvious iconic foods, I mean, we'd point to the Hostess Cupcake, the Twinkie, which are now going by the wayside, I guess, um, you know, Oreo cookies that you talk about, but some of the much less obvious. One that kind of surprised me in your book is the Subway Onion Chicken Teriyaki Sandwich, which, what does it have, 105 ingredients or something? Yeah, I counted them up one day. You have to look on their website to find their ingredients, but but they're there, and yeah, it totaled 105. Why don't you read from the book, if you would, just some of those? Sure. Um, okay, we have autolyzed yeast extract, gum arabic, some of them, I, I'm not, I, I bungle the pronunciation. Disodium inosate, uh, dextrose, soy protein concentrate, sodium phosphates, modified food starch, potassium sorbate, calcium disodium EDTA, ascorbic acid, azodiocarbonamide, and wheat protein isolate, and it goes on and on from there. And let's say the chicken alone, does the chicken ingredient come way down the list? The chicken ingredient in the chicken, I forget. I think it's it's got to be one of the, it's probably the first ingredient. Ingredients are always listed in terms of the uh, the concentration with the highest to the lowest. So um, I'm pretty sure that the chicken does have does have chicken in it. It also just has a lot of other things <laughs> it's not to, to help with the creation of that chicken. <laughs> um, and you also say that packaged foods make up about 70% of the calories Americans consume on average, <clears throat> which shocked me, but... It's, I mean, a lot of those are chemicals, and chemicals, as we know, aren't all bad. What's really the big health problem with the processed food you're talking about? Well, processed food, and I should, I should clarify that it's highly processed food is what we're really talking about. Um, the issue with it is that it has an abundance of um, salt, sugar, and fat, which we know in excess is, is not good for us. Um, and then it also has, it's often loaded up with some of these additives we're just talking about, some of which I, th I like to think of, it's barely, there are, some of them are barely edible. 
and some of them um, are known to cause to cause problems. The vast majority of them are probably safe, um, but they don't create they don't contribute any nutrition to the product whatsoever. And then the other thing is what processed food doesn't have in it, and that's natural a lot of naturally occurring nutrition, so vitamins and minerals, um, fiber. Um, things like antioxidants and things that our bodies really need in order to stay healthy. And, I mean, this is nothing new. I think you talk about way back in the 1920s or so. There's sort of a, a champion of food nutrition, Harvey Wiley, who tried to get uh, labeling laws passed, which is a pretty hot issue now. I mean, would he be shocked to see what environment we're in now? Or would he take heart and say Whole Foods recently saying we're going to label anything that has genetically modified organisms in it. Yeah, he started, Harvey Wiley is a fascinating character, and he started around the turn of the century, which is really when the processed food industry began. Most of the foods that we see now in the supermarket and at fast food restaurants just didn't exist um, 100 or so years ago. And he he was concerned about um, some of the chemicals that were going into food. He was concerned about some of the processing. He thought that white flour was abhorrent. And this was at a time when even a lot of doctors thought that white flour was perfectly wholesome and it was even maybe better than whole wheat flour because we could digest it more easily. So he, um, and he's known as the father of, of the FDA because of his pioneering work in getting the first uh, food regulation passed in 1906. And I think that he would be a little bit shocked today. He would be almost almost horrified at the complexity of our food and the amount of this complex food that we're eating. Um, and he would—he was also a big, huge fan of, of, of food labeling. So he would absolutely think that genetically modified food needed to be needed to be labeled, so people knew what they were eating. So he'd be pretty shocked. <laughs> he, I think he would be—he would be pretty shocked, and he would have if if he was uh, still involved in the government today. He wouldn't be. He was too much of a firebrand. He would never make it in government today. <laughs> and but just, uh, he would He would have a few changes. And we'd have a bit more time. Um, so in terms of possible solutions, I mean, what do you suggest consumers, I hate the word, but do on a day-to-day basis to the extent that we can sort of economically make choices? And that's a whole other issue is, yeah, it's great to shop at Whole Foods, but it's a hell of a lot more expensive than buying Big Macs. So yeah. some of your big suggestions. I know in one of the quotes in the book you say um, – Maybe you wouldn't recommend, or it was a quote from George Burns, the actor-comedian, who says, personally, I stay away from natural foods. At my age, I need all the preservatives I can get. I take it that's not your recommendation? (laughs) No, probably not. Uh, But I don't think we need to, everyone needs to be shopping at Whole Foods. I don't think, I think organic is a great choice, uh, probably an ideal choice for those who can afford it. But there's so much uh, fresh, healthy food available in the supermarket and Walmarts and Targets. Um, that it really just requires a rethinking of where our food is coming from. I mean, right now, the 70% uh, we're getting from highly processed food, which basically means we're outsourcing most of our diet. Uh, the foundation of our diet is are these things that food companies are cooking for us. And if we want to have um, a healthy diet, we want to feel good um, on a day-to-day basis, I think we need to think about doing a little bit more of our own cooking and maybe reshifting that balance so maybe it's 30% or 40% from processed food and the rest from fresh food. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was Melanie Warner, author of Pandora's Lunchbox, How Processed Food Took Over the American Meal. She'll be speaking at the Boulder Bookstore this Thursday night, March 14th at 7.30 with our local chef Ann Cooper, who's the head of Boulder School District's Food Services. And you can check out more about the book at MelanieWarner.com. We'll also be giving away signed copies of the book on next week's Tuesday show, Pledge Drive. 
for those who uh, who pledge. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by Beth Bartell and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music today from Joji Hirata and Hidden Rin Daiko and Ron Berger and Rick Freistack. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews and to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KG New Comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KG New Science Show, I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Susan Moran.